The records I kept during the final years of the revolution were scant and insufficient, but the events are burned into my memory and I relive them in my sleep. It seems like another life, though the remnants of that life are with me still, in my flesh and in my posterity. People ask me why I did it. Such a question demands the entire story. All I know is that once the desire took root in me, it grew and grew. And what a shame to think that a woman like Deborah Sampson, who has been forgotten by history, who has not had her story told in any real way. Welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today I am so excited to be joined by Amy Harmon, author of the novel A Girl Called Samson. I, I really I really think it's important that we write we write history as story because that's the way we learn. We learn through story. Harmon is a Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and New York Times best-selling author. Her books have been translated into 30 languages around the world. Amy has written 19 novels in multiple genres, including the bestsellers What the Wind Knows and Where the Lost Wander. Her fantasy novel, The Bird and the Sword, was a Goodreads Best Book finalist. From Sand and Ash was named the 2016 Whitney Award winner for Book of the Year. Today, I'll be talking to her about her newest historical novel, A Girl Called Samson. Um, could you start by telling us about your main character, Deborah Sampson? Uh, what was your character's life like, and what inspired her to disguise herself as a man and fight in the American Revolutionary War? Deborah Sampson is a character that isn't, is a woman that isn't well-known, uh, She's more well-known now, I think, than maybe when I was growing up. I actually taught history, American history, and I had never heard of her before. Uh, I came across her a couple years ago um, on the 4th of July of all days. Um, an online publication about uh, women of the American Revolution and realized I didn't know her and went on a, a deep dive. But she was a fascinating woman of her time. And there isn't, like I said, a lot of history about, about her. I think it's interesting how women were left kind of out of the narrative. And, and I don't know why. It was almost like they were left out almost to protect them. It was, it's, it's such a, it was such an odd realization as I went through the, 
the history where she it's it's noticeably absent. She did this thing that no woman had ever done, uh, made it to the end of the war, the Revolutionary War, uh, a full 18 months, and wasn't just, you know, a cook or something of that nature. She was actually light infantry and and managed to make it through to the end and was honorably discharged. Um, so just a, a fascinating person and not well known. As far as why did she do what she did? You know, that's the question that you have to ask yourself as you dig through the little information that's there and try to put yourself in her shoes. I really felt like that it was a, a burning desire to prove herself um, and to prove that that she was more than maybe the box she'd been put in. Um, she was an indentured servant her entire life, and but was extremely smart, extremely capable, um, had been raised with a bunch of boys, knew, had a, had a very specific set of skills, um, to quote Liam Neeson, um, and she really believed that she could do it um, and was, I think, very patriotic. I think she believed in the cause and, and wanted to be part of it and really did worry that she was going to miss out on history and wanted to and wanted to really see for herself and I think got her eyes opened in a lot of ways but proved herself. In your research were you able to determine if there were other women who did the same thing and approximately how many did that? I didn't find any that there there is no record of any that actually there were many there's there's there were thought to be many that tried uh you know that tried to disguise themselves um but she was the only one that actually was successful and and served that wasn't kind of sent packing um and then we have many that were involved in the in the movement but didn't disguise themselves you know um Molly Pitcher um her name wasn't Molly Pitcher, but she was the one that loaded the cannons with her husband. Um, cannonball shot through the skirts of her her dress. Um, just there's lots of stories like Molly's, but there's not a lot of stories um, out there like Deborah's. And Deborah was the first to actually be the first woman to actually receive a pension, a soldier's pension, and she had to fight for that. But um, as far as we know, she's the first to successfully have have done it. And how did you first come across her story? It was the 4th of July, 2021. Um, I just happened to be scrolling mindlessly and came across an article about women of the American Revolution. Her name was there. I did not know who she was. Um, and I pride myself with knowing American history pretty well, having having taught um, sixth and seventh graders at a school that was called, interestingly enough, American Heritage Academy and had never heard of her, um, went down the rabbit hole and by the end of the week had written a proposal for my publisher. And this has never happened to me before. It's always agonizing coming up with, with ideas, but her, she just, her story just screamed to me. And um, that was that that was how she, you know, was on my 
came on my radar was 4th of July, 2021. So you said Deborah was an indentured servant. Could you describe for us what what entails being an indentured servant and how common was it in the colonies at the time? It was extremely common. Uh, Deborah's mother, also named Deborah, um, was a descendant. She's the great, she was the granddaughter of William Bradford of Mayflower fame. So just quite the pedigree as far as the American story, quite the pedigree. Yet, isn't it interesting that, you know, only several generations removed, there was no, even though this was the American story and the American pedigree, there was no, um, definitely no perks that came with that. You know, the fact that her mother had to farm out all five of the children because her husband decided he didn't, he didn't want to be, he didn't want to provide for the family and, and left the family kind of in a lurch. And the mother had very limited, you know, resources and limited options. And all of the children were sent out, which is what indentured servitude is. Basically you, this, you give the children or the, um, the person away and basically they work for their keep. Um, and they are, there's, it's, it's, it's contractual, um, in, in Deborah's case, uh, she went to live with a relative first at five years old and at eight years old went somewhere else. And, and then by 10, that was the contractual agreement. She went to live with the Thomases, a, a big family with a bunch of boys. There are different accounts, whether there were six boys or seven boys or 10 boys, um, I, I found differing accounts there, but needless to say, a big group, a big family, uh, and she served as a, a servant uh, in this family until she was 18, um, and actually continued on after that, just because she didn't have a lot of options, but it was very, it was contractual, it was basically you, you worked for your room and board, um, and didn't have, especially as a girl, um, didn't have many options. You either got married or you served as, you know, you were a, a, a servant. Were you able to learn anything about how Deborah was received among the other soldiers? You know, that's, that part is really interesting to me because the fact that she was, that she was light infantry, um, try to think of it I've heard it compared to being, you know, a Marine. It wasn't the light infantry uh, led the army. They, they went in first. They were the fastest. They were the, they were the best. And so the fact that she was skilled enough um, to be put in light infantry says something about <laughs> how adept she was at what she did. And at, at and, at the, in, in, in the disguise, that she was completely believable. She was also tall, very tall and lanky. Um, and I think her, her physical, um, you know, her, her physicality really, you know, was it worked in her favor. Um, she was, she could run. That was, that was something she talks about is how she loved to run. She could shoot. 
um, incredible endurance. Um, and she just kept up. I, I think more than anything, she was determined. And I really felt like she was accepted because she, she could, she was able to toe the line. And so in that regard, I really believe she was just, I think they looked at her and saw a 15 year old boy. Um, in a lot of their records, they called her Bonnie, which is kind of interesting. You know, it means pretty, but they called her Bonnie boy. And so it, that's, I don't think she could have passed as a, as a 21 year old man. She was 21 year one, 21 years old at the time, but she could pass, you know, for a, a, a beardless boy and tall, lanky, beardless boy. And I think and she was convincing because she could do, because she could keep up. And I don't think the other men probably thought two, two things about it, just simply because why would anyone want to put themselves in that situation? I think they just accepted it because they couldn't imagine anything else. You know, they couldn't imagine that she was anything than what she seemed. Because why, why would you, you know? And she saw that pretty quickly, how horrible it was. And, and, and really, and realized that, you know, it was not being a man was not all it, all it was cracked up to be. Um, you talked a, a bit about women being mysteriously left out of historical record. Um, but you also sounds like you were able to find some first person accounts from Deborah's point of view. What, what research uh, what sources did you rely on and were you able to, you know, hear from Deborah herself? As far as hearing from Deborah herself, I mean, that was exactly, that was the hardest part. I felt like I, I came to know her peri peripherally and then, you know, research a lot of times starts to feel like, for a lack of a better word, it starts to feel like channeling when you really, really step into a time period and, and adopt, um, the circumstances and setting of, of your character. It, it, it is really one of those things where you start to feel like you know them. And I'm sure other historical authors have felt the same way, but there was a book written. Um, she was interviewed by a, a newspaper columnist uh, who honestly, it was almost unreadable. The account it's now part of the public domain, this book about Deborah Sampson, but he, she, you get a glimpse of Deborah and in her, you get pieces of her. Uh, he really didn't do her justice. He kind of took her story and, and went on an, on an elaborate, um, self-aggrandizing. It didn't even feel like, it, it really didn't feel like her. It felt like a Victorian novel where he kind of just went, went, went off, uh, whatever the time, time period, whatever the, the style of the day was, it kind of felt like that. Like there was all these layers of flowery language and high, high ideals, but very little about the woman herself. Um, but she does peek through the pages. You get a, you get a, a, a brief timeline. You get a little bit about her, her patriotism, about her growing up. Um, so you get a glimmer. Um, I found a better resource was a book by um, Dr. Thatcher, who is in the book. He wrote, anybody that's written about the American Revolution has read 
Dr. Thatcher's book. It's thousands of pages of journal entries. And interestingly enough, he was attached to uh, General Patterson, um, his General Patterson's brigade. Uh, Deborah Sampson was General Patterson's aide, aide to camp. And so I was able to almost, it was like being a fly on the wall through General, through um, this Dr. Thatcher, this doctor that was attached to this brigade, brigade and he was there with the entire length of the of the revolution, all eight years. I was able to get a, a real feel for her unit, for her whereabouts, for General Patterson, um, for just the the feel of of troop movements, all of those kind of things. And then I read um, books like Yankee Doodle Boy, which was the account of a of a young soldier, his journal entries, and getting to see, you know, he's just a foot soldier. But there are resources. And and by putting myself in where she was and the kind of the, the setting and all of that, I was able to get a feel for what it would have been like for Deborah Sampson. But yeah, I had to use my imagination in a lot of cases because there was so little in her actual words and of her actual feelings and, and those types of things. I'd like to ask you a little bit about your craft of historical fiction. Um, you, you know, you're, you're a very well-known author who creates some uh, very compelling narratives with a lot of emotional depth. But as we've been talking here, you're, you also do a lot of research. Can you talk about how you manage to mix the historical record with these fictional elements and emotional truths to create some, some depth and engagement um, and, and just storytelling. Um, how do you, what, what are your strategies and what's, can you tell us a little bit about your craft of creating historical fiction? You know, this is a, historical fiction is, is difficult in the sense that, of course, the research, but there's a different expectation with historical authors. And, and, and some people will read Deborah's book and some people have read Deborah's book and they don't like the liberties I've taken. Uh, I, I, I've heard it. I've heard it both ways, um, and I've heard from descendants of Deborah Sampson, which has been so cool. But you know, some people they don't want you to take any liberties at all, uh, and it is almost, you know, it's almost an irreverence when you do. Um, and then there are those that understand, and I. I've I've come to this feeling um, that in order to write a narrative to create a story, you have to there has to be some imagination involved. There has to be embellishment. Um, <laughs> had someone say Deborah's story was 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 wonderful enough and was compelling enough that no embellishment was needed. And I laughed out loud because embellishment is, is just another word for storytelling. You have to embellish. And what a shame to think that a woman like Deborah Sampson, who has been forgotten by history, who has not had her story told in any real way, there's, there's, there's young adult um, there's children's books, and the reason people authors have done those types of books is because they're they require less information. 
you know, they, you can, you can do a, a kind of a, a thumbprint on a life, but I wanted the whole woman. And in order to write, to really bring her to life, I had to, I had to take what I knew and I had to then embellish. I had to, to create narrative and create, to create story. Uh, I didn't, I didn't create narrative or story around what she actually accomplished. That I left alone. The fact that she did something that no other woman, as far as we know, had had ever done. That she was, not only did she manage to keep the disguise, but that she was, that she was excellent. She wasn't just, you know, one of the many. She actually excelled. And I wanted... In order to bring the, a person to life, you have to give them what a life entails. You have to give them fears and hopes and 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 love. You know, I a lot of times in my stories, uh, I I will create a love story because that's the human experience. That more than anything else is something that we all relate to. And so I gave her a love story in what I felt like was a very um, believable um setting and it and also made it possible for me to focus on some other um characters that were in the historical record that I think were able I was able to bring to life because I put them in a very human put them all in a very inhuman relationships um and I do think the relationship part of it is what separates you know a wikipedia page or a nonfiction novel from a story from a novel about history, about a historical figure, but a novel. Um, and I think it does so much more justice to, to historical characters to put them in a format where people can lose themselves in the history. I, I really, I really think it's important that we write, we write history as story because that's the way we learn. We learn through story. If we just are, we're just going to, you know, write nonfiction. Um, that's that's all fine and dandy, but you're you're going to lose a a huge portion uh, of the populace who who learns through story. And and now look how many people will know about Deborah Sampson that otherwise would have no clue. Well, me for one. Yeah. Um. I want uh, if it's if it's all right. I want to ask you about your background a little bit. Could you talk about your life before you became a published author and after, and that that moment when you decided to send your your manuscript out for publication? I have a interesting story. I know, um, you know, I wasn't. I, I I never met anyone that had even written a book. Uh, growing up, a very small town girl, um, I got married really young. I was 19 years old when I got married. Started having children pretty pretty soon after that, and was immersed in in just being a, a mom and a wife and helping to make ends meet. And um, it wasn't until I always writing was always my medium. I was a voracious reader growing up. Uh, I think that more than anything else formed my abilities with words um, was the fact that I I just consumed everything I could get my hands on. 
um, didn't have a TV growing up. <laughs> so I read all the time and read all the time, all the way up and basically until I, I became, I decided, you know, I think I can do this. And I wrote my first full length novel in my early thirties. And then at that, I, I did it to see if I could. It was a challenge to myself. Uh, I was teaching school at the time, had three young children, and I took one summer, which is a bonus for school teachers, took one summer to just kind of jump off and see if I could do it. And then I in, ended up continuing through the school year and just it was my hobby. When I had a chance, I, I would go back to this novel and finished it and and was like, okay, great. I, I did that. I proved to myself I could and I tucked it away. I had I didn't have any kind of it wasn't that I didn't have ambition. I just didn't even believe it was it was so far out of my of the realm of possibility and no idea how to go about it. Um and so I tucked it away. And it wasn't until I had a surprise baby <laughs> In 2010, um, my son was born, and I did not, I, I couldn't, I knew I wouldn't be able to teach school for a while. I wanted, I, I wanted to be home with him. And it was just around, um, between, around that time where publishing, independent publishing kind of had the dot-com explosion. And I was reading a lot of what was free on Amazon through Kindle because it was free. Uh, and I honestly, I was not impressed. I thought this stuff is, is not very good. Um, yet people are doing it. And I, and I admired that. Um, I thought, you know, I, I wonder if I could just self, I have a book, it's written and I figured out how to, to self publish it. I didn't even, I didn't send out queries to publishing companies. Like I said, that wasn't on my radar radar at all. I didn't know how to do it. I had no idea how to go about that. And so I went the pathway that I, you know, that that had opened up to me, uh, figured out how to, to self-publish. Um, that was in 2012 when I, early 2012, when I, I actually had written another book by that time. And I put both of them up on Amazon and told everybody in my very small town <laughs> that I'd written a book about them. No, um, but I told everybody in the small town that I'd written this book and they were all convinced it was about them. They were sure there was going to be some tea in these books. And so I got a, a few sales. I think I made like a hundred bucks, you know, it was, it was nothing, but it, it lit a fire in me because I realized that there were no gatekeepers. There was no one that could tell me that I couldn't do it because I had done it. And I, I just really, I just really put my head to the, you know, my nose to the grindstone. And I, I just kept writing. Um, so 2012, I put the two up about six months later, I put another book, I published another book. Uh, in 2013, I, pub I published a different blue. So here we are, uh, a year and a half in, I published my fourth book and that book hit the New York times list. So I know that doesn't happen. And then people ask me how, how, and I, I said, I, I, I have no idea. It was, it was a perfect storm. It was, there was qual the book was quality. 
I think the book was good. It was it was a a period of time where, you know, like I said, it was the dot com era of, of self publishing. It just it was one of those things that a, a few bloggers got a hold of it and loved it and promoted it. And you've seen that happen now on TikTok. It's this, kind of the same thing where a book will just go. Um, but it went. The fourth, my fourth book went. And I just kept at it. And I actually just finished my 20th novel. And about 10 novels in, I actually, when I hit the New York Times list, I had many agents that wanted to work with me. <laughs> and so I never, I never have queried. Um, I haven't. I have an agent who is very reputable, but she con actually Colleen Hoover, who everybody knows Colleen Hoover, Colleen Hoover and I started at the same time and it's Colleen Hoover that introduced me to my agent. Um, so, you know, it was kind of funny the things that happened, but I am not stopped. I have just kept going. And it was about 10 books in where I wrote my first true historical even though I, I dabbled, I feel like all of my books, um, you know, whether it was they had a, a Bonnie and Clyde backstory or things like that, there was history in all of my books. I was working, playing around with, you know, dual timelines and things like that. But it wasn't until I wrote From Sand and Ash, which was a true historical, that I, I knew I couldn't self-publish it. I knew I, it needed a, I needed help. I needed to kind of spread my wings in a different direction. And my, at that point, my agent, you know, shopped it. But, and and it sold, and, and I've, I've been with uh, Lake Union uh, ever since. So it's, that's kind of a nutshell of a very wild story. Well, that makes me think of a, a speech I heard the other day. I was at the Historical Novel Society North America Conference, and Lisa Wingate was the speaker. Mm -hmm. And she had talked about her career and she's published 30 novels and things were going well for her, but she kind of just felt like she was going through the motions. And it wasn't until she published um, her dream come true novel, which the title is escaping me right now. Uh, I'm trying to think was, of it too. I know Lisa's. Uh, before we work. were yours yes. in 2017, she said, you know, that was, that one just really took off and it was her dream come true novel. And, so that makes me wonder for you and where you're at with your career and having so much success at this point, what do you aspire to? What do I aspire to? Um, you know, I think sometimes recognizing that you've, just like I recognized that I had gone as far as I could go on my own with the self-publishing, I recognized that I needed to cross another bridge which I did at this point, I'm, I'm at that place again in my career, which is in interesting that we're, we're talking about this. I'm at that point again, where I feel like, okay, I've done as much as I can do with, with where I'm at. I, I do feel like there's another bridge to be crossed and I'm kind of at that place where I'm ready to kind of step back and, and, and try try some new things. And I don't mean necessarily try some new things with my writing because I've I've always been very adventurous. I've I've never put myself in a box as far as what I've I've written historical fantasy, I've written contemporary, I've written of course just straight historical, but even then um 
magical realism a lot of times I'll throw in to my historical novels, What the Wind Knows, which was set in the Irish Revolution in 1921. There's a whole magical realism subplot, um, which was, you know, that's just, I, I, I've never pigeonholed myself. And it's been the key to my success, but it's also been, I think, what has, what has, it's, it's also, it's a, been a kind of a two-edged sword because being a, uh, uh, writing in a specific genre, you, you, you know, you're kind of able to build your, your audience. And I've been all over the place. Um, and a lot of people in my audience have come with me as I've ping ponged all over in and written what interests me. Some people aren't interested in, you know, fantasy or magical realism. Or, and so I've, you know, in, in a lot of cases, you know, I maybe have an audience that follows those books and then another part of my audience that follows me with my historical novels. So I, I, I don't want to stop doing that. I think for me, it's, that's what's kept me hungry and that's kept me, uh, kept it interesting. I don't want to just write what I think people want to read. I want to write what I want, the stories I want to tell. And I'm kind of at that point again, where I'm like, okay, maybe I need to take an, you know, whether it's stepping back and, and writing something that I just want to write instead of proposing it to my publisher. Usually I write a proposal, they'll accept it, and we kind of move that way. Kind of in that place where I'm going, hmm, I'm going to write something that has that I haven't sold. And then we'll see, you know, after I've written it, maybe, maybe we need to shop it around a little bit. And I think that's, I think it's always exciting to to realize that there sometimes you've you've reached the ceiling of of where a certain path can take you and it's always good to you know to be open to new horizons well amy uh, congratulations on your newest title a girl called samson thank you so so much for joining me it's been such a pleasure i have your books on my shelf behind me so it's just such an honor to talk to you thank you so much it's always always good to talk shop. <laughs>